Right. Best possible relationship, which is the aspiration in the book, mm-hmm. doesn't mean the best relationship. Mm-hmm. It means every relationship has potential. How do you see the potential that relationship has mm-hmm. and fulfill that? In other words, it might be, how do I make this really bad relationship bearable right. and just good enough that we're going to get through it? Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Agnell president and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. I'm pleased to welcome Michael Bungay-Stanier. Pretty good. Bungay-Stanier. Bungay-Stanier. That's that that smeary thing that Australians do. So, Michael, you're an accomplished author. I think, you know, the book, as you humbly say, you had one book which enjoyed some minor success, The Coaching Habit. Have you broke a million yet? We have. It's probably close to 1.2 million or something. You've got to update your bio. It still says you're you're almost a million. I know. I need to get onto that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you describe you've written several other books, which you you termed less successful, which just goes to show the the whims of the uh, readership public. (laughs) People go, "How how do you sell a lot of books? And I'm like, (laughs) You know, I've had one book that has had Mary, you know, magical fairy dust sprinkled on it, the coaching habit, because, you know, I reckon if you can sell 10,000 copies of a book, you're doing pretty well. That's hard to shift. Mm -hmm. That's 10,000 people who bought a book from you. Selling 100,000 is very rare, very hard. Mm -hmm. Selling a million is like magical. I mean, it's freakish, it's unicorn-ish. So um, everything pales in comparison to that. And people go, so how do you sell a million copies? I'm like, I wish I knew. Because I would love all my books to sell a million copies and they haven't. So yeah. Really quick Coles notes. So you wrote this coaching habit, hugely successful. You've written a bunch of other books and you started a company called Box Crayons. It's a learning and development company. We at the Humphrey Group, we know each other. We know each other. (laughs) We respect what you do, uh, which really teaches people to be curiosity led yeah but you have left the demands of the the business world behind or at least of running a training company to write more books and and that's really what we're here to talk about today you have this this great new book i'm holding it because there's an audio of medium yes i'm going to speak glowing words about it it's called how to work with almost anyone it is a topic i mean i think about the 20 years i've spent in leadership development and coaching people fundamentally it always comes down to problems of working with people or things you want people to do for you and they won't or people you want to work with so let's just start with what led you to write this book well i mean for one thing you're putting your finger on it which is work gets done through people people are messy complicated confusing irrational glorious brilliant that's you who's listening and also the people you're trying to work with as well And most of the time, our working relationships, which are so influential on our happiness and our success at work, get left to luck. You know, we kind of cross our fingers, go, okay, well, let's see how it goes. You're probably a good person. I'm probably a good person. And sometimes they work really well, and sometimes they're a disaster, and often they're somewhere in the middle. And so when I was thinking about what the next book was to write, I was thinking about a process that I've been practicing for 25 years probably since I first learned it from Peter Block, who, you know, a huge figure in our world. And he calls it social contracting. And basically, social contracting and 
what I talk about in this book is, boiled down to a single sentence, have a conversation about how you work together before you get pulled into the what of the work. And the what of the work is so noisy and bright and shiny and urgent that we're always pulled there. The, one of the first questions in the coaching habit is, what's the real challenge here for you? It's a question about the work. It's a question about, let's figure this out. But this kind of comes before that, which is, you know, if you and I were collaborating on something bad or work, or maybe I reported to you, maybe Humphrey's group poaches me mm-hmm. and, and hires me, which would be a terrible decision. This is actually a gateway conversation yeah, exactly, for that, Michael. Exactly. So you've stolen, that, you've stolen my idea. That would be a recruitment <laughs> failure on, on your part. It would be a disaster. <laughs> yeah. But let's say it happened and you know, you'd be sitting down going, Michael, We've got some cool things for you to do, but before we do it, let's you and I have a conversation about how to work best mm-hmm. together. Because, you know, you've you've made up a bunch of stuff about me and how I like to work. I've done the same for you, but let's get real about it. What what will help us thrive, and what should we avoid mm-hmm. so that we're not making mistakes? We're not kind of pulling ourselves into the into the shadows. And, and you're just listening. You describe that conversation. The thing that strikes me is that that conversation never happens. Rarely. <laughs> so why is that? Why do, why, you know, if to your point, you know, re- working relationships are fundamental to not only yeah. your success professionally, but your happiness. Yeah. Why do we never hear those conversations happening? In, in fact, if I think about it, it's usually only the conversation, that kind of conversation only starts to happen when the relationship is an unhappy one. Right. Then we say, we need to talk about how we're working together. Exactly. So why is that? Well, I've got some hypotheses. Um, one is just the urgency of work and the comfort of work. We're, we're really all comfortable with getting on with it. You know, when we start a working relationship, we want to prove ourselves by getting on with it. You know, when we're midway through the, the relationship and things are going well or things are going badly, we want to prove ourselves by getting on with it. Mm-hmm. And nobody's going this is great because I've got so much free time at the moment. I was hoping to squeeze in some conversations. I was just wondering what we should talk about. Everyone's like, I've got too many KPIs and OKRs and meetings and to-dos and Slack messages. We're all overwhelmed by life and work. So that's the presenting challenge, I reckon. But then there's the deeper challenge, which is a conversation like this has a degree of intimacy and vulnerability and courage. And there's not a whole lot of role modeling around how should we do this? (laughs) How do we get started? And just as with the coaching habit, where in in many ways, my goal was to unweird coaching (laughs) so that normal people could look at it and go, oh, Oh, okay, that's what they've been talking about. Well, if that's what they're talking about, I could give that a crack because that uh, that seems clear enough. Mm-hmm. Similarly with this conversation, I'm like, I'd love people to go, okay, yeah, I get psychological safety is important, mm-hmm. but nobody's ever told me how to do that. Right. This is one of the ways you can start building a relationship that is not just safe, but also vital, meaning right. kind of, let's call it psychological bravery, bravery and also repairable. Mm. We know how to fix it when things go wrong. Mm. So, makes sense. It is, you know... But let me ask you, before yeah. you ask me another question, you're in this world. Mm-hmm. What's your hypothesis about why this conversation is rare? Yeah, I, I think it's... Um, you know, I am in the leadership communication business. I think, I think there are a number of things. First, I think it comes with risk. Yeah. You know, when you think about... Let's imagine you're hiring someone or you've just hired someone. To suddenly have that conversation occur yeah. and realize... 
oh shit, <laughs> this is, you know, there are some fundamentally different right. views. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing you, you reference intimacy and vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think there's been a, a really positive change in the last five years, accelerated by the pandemic, accelerated by our views of what authenticity and leadership should be. But you think back to the stereotypes of who great leaders were. I mean, I think of Jack Welch, mm. you know, who led by fear, intimidation. Ironically, it's now come out that he wasn't actually very good. Exactly. Everything. But, you know, he was glorious, right? He was good for the stock price for a while. Yeah, yeah. sure. He was manipulating it with, you know, GE Capital, but let's, we can, we can leave that <laughs> That's one. another podcast. Another but. podcast. But um, it very much was, you showed no fear, you showed no vulnerability. And so I think that's just not a conversation that fit with historical archetype of leadership. I think the last thing I'll say is, you know, and this was going to be the next question. If, if you hold the hypothesis that you have to have this conversation or it's, it's beneficial to have the conversation, yeah. well, then you start asking yourself, well, you know, I have hypothetically, let's say I'm thinking of, you know, a director in, yeah. in the Fortune 500 company. Now they have, you know, 15 direct reports. Yeah. They have six peers. <laughs> yeah. They have VP and they start thinking, oh my gosh, it's overwhelming. Right. How do I have all of those conversations and then deal with the emotional issues right. that each one triggers? So, okay. how, so what would be your thought uh, yeah. on how do you calibrate with whom to have those conversations or is it everyone? Well, I think you don't have to do everybody all at once. <laughs> By you, you don't have to read, yeah. You don't have to read this book and suddenly go, "All right, I need to schedule forty-three conversations in, in the next seven days," because that is overwhelming. I think you go right. Where do I start with this? Mm-hmm. But I do think you can look at the key working relationships you have. That might be the people who report to you. That might be who you report to. Mm-hmm. That might be the colleagues that you need to collaborate with and make magic happen with. Mm-hmm. That might be vendors that are really crucial to your business. That might be key customers. Mm-hmm. That might be like crucial to your business. And you think to yourself, with all of these key relationships, I have a choice to either have this conversation with them or to not have this conversation with them. Um, because the relationship's going to be there whether you do or you don't. Every choice you make has prizes and punishments. So if you don't have this conversation, if you go, you know what, I'll just, maybe we'll just get lucky <laughs> and nothing will go wrong and we'll be fine and we'll just handle the, you know, we'll handle the chaos when it comes, then there are prizes and punishments to that. You avoid this vulnerability. You avoid that kind of slightly weird moment where you're like, hey, can we talk about how we're working together? Um, you can avoid facing into the risk of going, oh, there are some things we're different on and it's, we don't know how to uh, work with that. But the, the prizes are that you surface the stuff that's going to be the conflict. You preempt the things that might break it. You give yourself the best chance to actually find out what they want from you and, what they, and they get to find out what you want from them. Like when I'm working with a vendor, um, you know, they're like, great, we're going to build a website for you. And they come in and they're like, let's talk about websites. And I go, I'm keen to talk about this website. That's why I'm hiring you. But before we do that, tell me, when you've, when you've had a client and it's been a really good client, what do they do? And what do they not do? Uh, t- teach me on how to be a good client. And then I'm going to say, now let me tell you what a good vendor is for me. Let me tell you the stuff that drives me nuts. <laughs> Because there's some stuff that drives me nuts. And I want you to know about it so you don't inadvertently drive me nuts. Drive me nuts. And they're like, that's great. Because they want this working relationship to work. I want it to work. But we go into it blind and we don't take the moment to say, hey, what, what, what would drive you nuts and what would make you just ecstatic? We think 
that building a website is all that's required. Right. Now that's interesting the way you, and I know we're going to talk about this, you know, the five principles and, you know, behind, underpin the book and you know, what you call the keystone conversation. But what you just described there with the vendor is, is not what I would call the extreme vulnerability or intimacy. Right. So is there a, when you wrote the book, is there a range that uh, that you yeah. should think about for these conversations? I think so. I think you calibrate it to the context and the type of relationship and also to the status you have in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Brene Brown, who's been the champion for vulnerability, mm-hmm. she's really clear about it. She's like, don't be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> don't, be, don't, be, don't kind of spill all your guts. Don't kind of, right. it's like, Adam Grant, when he talks about give and take, he's like, the givers that are at the bottom of the pile are the ones who don't know how to give well and they deplete themselves when they give. The givers who are at the top of the paper who who succeed most are ones who know how to give in a way that both protects their own resources but generously gives what they have to give. Mm. And it's a similar kind of metaphor here, which is if you're the boss of a team, Mm -hmm. you have more status and more authority and more potential to actually be vulnerable because actually what the degree to which you are vulnerable and open and and intimate is the degree to which your team will be that to you because you're setting the standard. If you're reporting to somebody and they're your boss, you might go, you know, there's some stuff I want to keep close to my chest for now. So you have a different type of conversation. With people who are vendors where I'm like, oh, this is more than a transaction. You know, I'm spending X thousand dollars with you to build a website. I, this isn't just uh, I'm ordering right. some envelopes. I'm, order, I'm, I'm trying to get you to build something that's magical for me. Mm. But it's also not somebody who I'm going to be working with for three years and that. So I'm like, I have a different type of conversation. So you calibrate. So you look, at, you look at the relationship. You look at the depth of the relationship. Exactly. That, uh, and the depth that you hope to have. Yep. And then you calibrate your level of disclosure and intimacy right. accordingly. Right. And there are some relationships where, you know, but you're like, I have a bad relationship with this person. It's hard. It's miserable. And it's a bit antagonistic. And there's a real instinct to say, you know, the protective thing to do is to to hide from that and and retreat from that. And that might be the best strategy. But it might be that you go, hey, Bart, we've got three months left on this project. Mm -hmm. It's been, I'm I'm just recognizing that at times it's been a bit of a struggle between us. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we can just have a chat around how do we best work together over the next three months? Mm -hmm. That means that we get the work done and we work in as harmonious way as possible. You know, the goal in the book is the best. It's not to become best friends. (laughs) Right. Best possible relationship, which is the aspiration in the book, Mm -hmm. doesn't mean the best relationship. Mm -hmm. It means every relationship has potential. How do you see the potential that relationship has Mm -hmm. and fulfill that? Mm. In other words, it might be, how do I make this really bad relationship bearable and just good enough that we're going to get through it? So there is a pragmatism. I mean, you know, that's what I like about your your the way you're laying this out is this, it's kind of idealism crossed with pragmatism, right? You know, there's the idealism that we really should build the best possible relationship, but there's a pragmatism in in recognizing not every relationship will be magical and you have to set the ceiling. And also you have to kind of allocate your energy based on yeah. the, the scope that's possible. Is that exactly. Right? Yeah, you, it's like you've got my idealism and my enthusiasm for this, and that collides with your reality. <laughs> so use it for your in your reality. Right. So, so let's shift then to how you actually do this. So you do this caliber, you've identified a relationship, 
let's take a real example. Yeah. You're where it is a relationship where there's great potential. Let's say you're hiring a, yeah. a senior person. You're, yeah. you're a CEO or you know, SVP, and you've just hired yeah. a very senior person who you expect to do some great right. things. So big potential. Exactly. Early days, so the warts aren't showing. Everyone's in the honeymoon phase. Actually, you've just gone through a performative process where everybody has just shown all their good stuff. Yes. <laughs> They're like, it's like the first date. Yeah, they exactly. Put, we both I have, put on makeup. <laughs> I have sparkled in the job interview. You have sparkled yeah. in the job interview. We're all like, this is great. Well, let's start working now, yeah, Michael. Let's exactly. go work. Let's this not is, talk about the relationship. This is the job I've been looking for. Yes. And you're like, you are the person who is going to save us. Because there's all that kind of hopefulness yeah. slash magical thing thinking that happens right at the start. So now you now you have what you call a yeah. keystone conversation. Right. So what is a keystone conversation and how do you approach it? So th the summary of the keystone conversation is let's talk about how we work together before we, what we talk about what we're working on. And if you take just one thing from this whole conversation between me and Bart, that's it. Just have a chat about how we're going to work together. That might be all you need. I suggest five questions in the book and each question has like three exercises connected to it so you can kind of think about what questions you want to ask and deepen and make more nuanced your answers to it can you just like run through the five on the sure. lightning round and then we can come back. yeah sure so uh first question is the amplify question and that is what's your best when do you shine when do you flow it's not what are your values and it's not what are your strengths and it's not what are you good at it's when do you light up when are you in the zone? When are you at your very best? The second question is the steady question, which is what are your practices and preferences? Because we all have a way of working that we think is probably common sense, and it's not. <laughs> it's common for you, right? It, not it not for them. <laughs> exactly. It's the way you show up in meetings and the way you do or don't use Slack and email. And are you a morning person and all of that good stuff? So it's kind of talking about the logistics of how we work because they're small things, but they they can be deeply irritating mm -hmm. when somebody like as a yeah. Give me an example. Uh, here's the tiniest of examples. So. I use Asana as a way of tracking the stuff that I need to do. My assistant helps me with my Asana and often is giving me stuff to do in my Asana. And what is Asana for? Asana is a project management. Okay. It's like a collaboration yeah, okay. piece of software. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. But broad, basically it's my to-do list. I want my to-do list, my actions to start with a verb. <laughs> like I'm really specific about it. I'm, I learned it from David Allen who did the getting things done thing. It's like make your task start with a verb so you know what needs to be done. So part of my conversation with Claudine was if you're writing a task for me, it needs to start with a verb. This is what it needs to look like. Just this tiny little preference, but it irritates me in an in unreasonable <laughs> like a visceral level. way. Yeah, exactly. Right. If I'm like, oh that's, oh, that's not how I like it. So that. So when I put in in the podcast list of topics, yeah, you're like, ah! <laughs> I should have said to you, here are my what are your preferences to be a podcast guest? <laughs> well, well, I did say that to you, right, right at the start. Right. I said, tell me what makes a good guest yes. for you. Yes, because I am trying to practice what mm -hmm. I preach, and I'm like, tell me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to but I should have responded in retrospect and said, yeah. tell me what will make you come to life exactly. in an interview. <laughs> exactly, and I would have said. Let's have a good conversation. Mm -hmm. And if you see something interesting, yeah. feel free to chase it down and follow it. And you did when we did our prep. I remember exactly. that. You know, and I got the sense from you, because you know, I do I do this prep calls for a reason, that you did not want a structured interview. Yeah. You wanted a great conversation. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, exactly. So we kind of did that a little bit. That's a good example. Now questions three and four of the five. 
are kind of sister questions. They're the bad date and the good date question. Okay. And the good date question is, what can we learn from past successful relationships? And when you say that, are you saying your, like if, if I was hiring you, yeah. I would say, what can we learn from your past successful relationships? Yeah. And the, the, the way this conversation works is you ask and you answer the questions both. It's not just you finding out from them. It's also a trade of content. You know, if you trash get back to Peter Block and social contracting, mm-hmm. you know, in, the, in the, the world of law, a contract is an equal exchange of value. So you like, there needs to be an exchange of value. So I would say specifically, if I was, you know, let's say I've hired a senior salesperson mm-hmm. and go, when you've worked with a CEO in a company like this and it's gone really well, and you felt really supported and able to flourish as a SVP sales, what happened? And then I go, let me tell you, when I've had my very best working relationships with a salesperson, this is what was done, this is what was said, this is what's not done and what was not said. These are the things that made that work well because the patterns from your past will repeat again in your future. And then you flip it and you do the, what can we learn from past frustrating relationships? And then you're like, when you've worked with a CEO like me and you've tried to be a good SVP of sales and it's just been a battle, <laughs> what happened? What did you do? Like, what, how did you contribute to the dysfunction? What did the other person do? How did they contribute to the dysfunction? And then I'd go, okay, let me tell you mine. When I worked with an SVP of sales and it's you know, gone to hell in a handbasket, I'll tell you what I did and how I reacted, and I'll tell you what they did as well. And now we're just gathering data. Like what you hope is your people are going, so I think I should do more of the stuff that makes it work and less of the stuff that doesn't make it work. But then the fifth question just recognizes that even with all of this great prep, you it's, some, it's still going to go wrong. Every working relationship. It's not goes everyone up. is as perfect as you or me, Mike. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not. I'm not ruling out that this may go. This may take a sharp left-hand turn and suddenly turn into something miserable like this. But we'll see. If you work on the assumption every working relationship will go off the rails, it might be a blow-up catastrophe, but more likely it's a ding here and a crack there and a dent here. It means that, you know entropy. Things slowly start to deteriorate. So the power of this question in some ways is it gives you permission to acknowledge that this that actually- things will happen. That things will happen. Right. And then you go, so how will we repair it when things go wrong? And you can have this conversation. And it's an unusual question because people are like, how will we repair it when things go wrong? But really what gives you permission and what all of these questions do is it gives you permission to keep talking about the health of the relationship. Right. You can keep checking in because- So it creates that- that safe you start in a safe environment yeah and then you've acknowledged that there will be yeah challenges but you've always, you broadly speaking you've set a precedent mm. that every now and then we talk about how we're doing together and that's where some of the magic lies where it means now i can go hey but actually let me ask you how do you think this podcast is going i mean what are you thinking I, i'm enjoying it you know because i'm getting to i mean look I, selfishly i always i started doing the podcast because i could just learn interesting things for myself so yeah. i'm learning a lot you right. know i'm thinking about i really like your questions too you know i'm i'm taking away already a couple things that i'm going to put into practice myself you right. know, one is just this concept of of having this discussion before you get to the work i mean right. i think that's really critical I, I'll, I'll full vulnerability here I haven't. <laughs> right. You know, I, I go on the first date. It's wonderful. You start working. And then, <laughs> and then you're like, go and do this. Totally. 
Report and I think, back to me when it's done. I think, if the, yeah. and the second thing I would say, I, I love the questions, but I really love the fifth question yeah. because I think that um, when I think historically, you know, what, what there's a, there's been some pattern for me when I'll hire someone. I mean, my my you know, kind of stepping back, my views on bringing people into mm-hmm. the Humphrey Group uh, um, have really evolved. You know, I used to believe 15 years ago. I'm going to hire people and we'll work together forever. <laughs> we will be this merry band. Yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll take on the world. I'm Robin Hood. You were Friar Tuck. Yeah. You were Maid Marian. We're going to be exactly. amazing. We will like, overthrow, yeah, King overthrow John. the evil you yeah. know, sheriff or whatever. But, and you know, then I would, you know, over time, I would be disappointed by people. Right. <laughs> and frankly, they were probably disappointed by me. Right. <laughs> but it was always this kind of over time, I would become progressively more disappointed. <laughs> And then I would go, you know, I need this from you, I need that. And sometimes people would then adapt to what I right. want and evolve. But other times they wouldn't. And and I would be faced with a situation where it wasn't working for me. It probably it wasn't working for them either. Right. And there would be kind of this messy divorce. And the weird thing was, you know, I would say, okay, you know, we, we can't work together anymore. This hasn't worked. And I would be upset at them. Right. You know, but I, I look at this and I say, you know, really, there was never a real an acknowledgement that relationships do yeah. have to withstand and repair yeah and i would have benefit from so it's, it's really valuable not that it would necessarily fixed it or or but it would have been more of an honest conversation both ways it might have it might have done a couple of things first of all you might have been able to nip some things in the bud earlier you know you might have been able to like one of my favorite questions that i use in the context of repair is what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said it's particularly powerful, I think, but if you're kind of, you hold most of the cards, you know, you've got the kind of more, the seniority. Mm-hmm. You just work on the assumption that people find it hard to say the hard things to you right. because you've got status and authority and power and right. you're the CEO and all of that stuff. So I say that, you know, I've got, I've, I've got a role in two small companies. When I'm t- checking in with Shannon, the CEO of Boxer Crowns, one of the questions I ask all the time is what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said? I want to give space for the unsure or the timid or the not quite clear or the thing just to have a space to, to maybe move into the light. And when I'm working with my other little company, I do the same with my team all the time, which is like, what needs to be said? Hmm. And we had this great moment the other week where one of the people on the team said, uh, we were having a conversation about something. She goes, Michael, I think there's something that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said. And I'm like, yes. No. On the one hand, on the one hand, I was like, I'm frustrated that we're yeah, in this conversation <laughs> because I'm like, oh, I'm disappointed we've ended up here. On the other hand, I'm like, this, this actually makes our relationship better because she's brave enough to actually bring that out and have that conversation with me. And it was a watershed moment. And what did she say to you? Uh, she, we, she was talking about her, basically, broadly speaking, her role in the company, and. I'm not sure this is correlation or causation, but, you know, having worked that through with her, mm-hmm. she has just leveled up. Mm-hmm. She's just got to that next level of seniority and accountability and ambition and kind of the way she shows up. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of magical. Mm-hmm. It's really, it, it is. I mean, I think, you know, look, I think we have apprehension. I, yeah. I'll speak personally. You're always apprehensive of hearing, quote, the truth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the truth hurts. But I also think when I think back in my career of people where we have had that openness, where we said what hasn't been said, you can deal with it. <laughs> right. It's And it's always, you feel almost relief. <laughs> yeah. When, when you deal with it. I totally 
empathize with the journey you describe, which is like you hire somebody good, it's good for a while, then it slightly deteriorates. And I've done exactly the same as you have, which is like, well, maybe if I just ignore it, this will somehow resolve itself and they'll read my mind so they'll understand how they're slightly pissing me off as we go through this. And funnily enough, they've yet to read my mind. (laughs) Obviously, there's not that much going on there. And then at the end, I kind of have this slight martyr, martyred feeling, which is like, of all, I did all this stuff for you. I gave you this right. great opportunity, and you, you throw it back in my exactly, face. Exactly, exactly. Like, Go fail somewhere else. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and they'll leave with some sort of anger and frustration around it. And there's no grace in the way that we part ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm fine with people leaving. I'm fine with people going. This is no longer a fit for me. My hope for them and for me is that we leave with as much grace mm-hmm. as possible. So all that can be resolved is resolved. Right. Not all of it can be, but all if as much of it as possible. Mm-hmm. And I look back on some of the people who've come and gone from the companies that I've started and I've hired. I'm like, yeah, I wish I could, um, you know, do the access. I'm trying to do better yeah. from from there on because there's there's stuff I can learn from how poorly I played my role. You know, they're responsible for their side of the table, and I wouldn't say that they were particularly great at it either. But I can't be responsible for that. I can just be responsible for my side of the table. Well, this is really helpful in terms of thinking about that first conversation. Yeah. But I also think we're really talking about, you know, you and I as, you know, CEOs and owners of smaller companies. Yeah. Let's just shift to two other scenarios or one other scenario that comprises two changes in that. Yeah. And I'm thinking now of a lot of the clients who I've worked with over the years who are executives or near executives in large corporations. Right. And the the difference in this, so that's the, the individual think of as a, potential, but the scenario, let's fast forward in the working relationship yeah. where they, they've been promoted into a team or they've inherited a team. They've been working they, with the people for a long time. And, and one thing I'll often hear is, you know, I have this person on my team, he or she is close to retirement. Yeah. They're a mediocre performer. The organization preclude, prohibits me from firing them. Let's say the, the severance is too high. Yeah. Uh, the HR structure makes it difficult to performance management them. Yeah. Um, and, and the person themselves, uh, you know, they, they've kind of confided to those, they're not happy, but they're- They're doing you know, their time. They're doing their time, the golden handcuffs, blah, blah, yeah. blah. So let's apply this, this yeah. model to that situation. What sure. would you advise that person to do, that leader to do with that employee? Well, the first question is, is it worth having this conversation? And, and what determines that? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I think it, I think you weigh up the prizes and punishments thing. You're like, what if I don't have this conversation? What happens? Mm-hmm. What's the downside of that? And what's the upside, the potential upside of it? And if I do have that conversation, what's the potential upside and what's the potential downside? Mm-hmm. Passive resistance is the hardest thing to manage. Mm-hmm. It just is. I mean, people who are actively behaving badly, that's, a more obvious way of things to do. It's when they're kind of like, I'm just passively resisting. <laughs> it's very hard to do much right. to do much with that. So they've crossed the mediocrity threshold and right. we'll go no further. Yeah. So you get to decide if this is a thing that's worth taking on. What would make it worth taking on? Because, you know, those to your point, those people are huge energy sucks. Right. Right. They're on my team. They're, you know, the client will say to me, they're on my team. They're not going to retire in the next year. They're going to have five years. Yeah. And I'm, I've got this person on my team. They're actively either resisting or, or passively resisting. Yeah. And it infests 
yeah. the team because yeah. the people who are keen, who are motivated, view them and say, what, what you know, is going on? What's going on? And yeah. you're not doing anything about it, yeah. executive. Yeah. So one of the questions I love comes from Roger Martin, mm -hmm. you know, a, a Toronto, former Dean of Rodman, so kind of big name for us and a, an influential writer and thinker in this space. And when he talks about strategy um, and kind of strategic dreams, he doesn't say, ask the question, should we do it or not? He says, for this particular imagined outcome, mm -hmm. what needs to be true for this to be real? So one question you might ask that person is, look, you've got three years left. Um, my take on it is you're, you're kind of in cruise control here. Mm -hmm. You might choose your own words around that, but you're like, I, I'm just, I want to know what needs to be true for you for these last three years to be good for you mm -hmm. and for you to be a really productive member of this team. Mm -hmm. What needs to be true? And it's quite a challenging and interesting question because it actually invites them to say, this is the stuff that you would need to be in place for me to show up the way that you might like me to show up. And they probably won't have an answer right away. You might say, I'd love you to think about that and come back to me because, and you get, you know, you get to make these choices. Like you get to say, look, let me give you some feedback about the impact you're having on the, my team at the moment. And you know, in this book and in other books, I, I use a very simple model to figure out what to say. Uh, it comes from nonviolent communication, data, feelings, judgments, wants, and needs. So data are the facts. There's always far fewer of them than you think. Feelings, you know, there's all sorts of different models for how many feelings there are, but I, I have a, a shorthand of mad, sad, glad, ashamed, and afraid, and that covers most of the main ones. Um, judgments. Judgments about them, judgments about you, judgments about the situation. There's an infinite amount mm -hmm. of judgment. We're all very good at judgment. Yeah, we're very good. It's like a, it's a infinite energy machine. And then there's the, the request, what do you want and what do you need? So you may choose to share some feelings and judgments. I'm frustrated because it feels like you're just putting in the bare minimum. I'm concerned because we've got three years left before your retirement date. And it's going to have a pretty big impact on my team if you're just in cruise control when the rest of us are working really hard. I'm optimistic that there's a solution here that can make this worthwhile for you and worthwhile for me. I'm curious to know what it is. And maybe that's the request. I'm really curious to know what needs to be true um, for you to show up more fully and in a more engaged way. And then if they're like, nothing, because I'm just doing my time. And, <laughs> and and, or they might say, I appreciate you coming to me. Yeah. The reality is you don't have the power to change the culture, right. the compensation, yeah. or the direction of the organization in ways that would be fulfilling. Yeah. And I can't afford to go anywhere else. Yeah. Then, then what? Because <laughs> yeah. I think that's, you know, often when I hear people talk about, it's not that they, they'll say, oh, you know, my, my manager is a good person. Yeah. They've just become embittered right, yeah, right. by the realities, right? Yeah. And it's so ironic that many organizational compensation policies are designed to retain people, but create these gilded cages. Right, yeah. So it's a wicked problem. Mm -hmm. No, there's not, a, there's not an easy- I See, not I, an easy I wasn't gonna give here. you yeah. an, easy, no. an easy one. But. I mean, but what I think we often can fall prey to mm -hmm. is the assumption that they're a terrible person. Mm. They're just a leech on my team, sucking me dry, vampirically. You know, it's and 
you can feel the judgment and anger and resentment building. A conversation like this may not shift anything, but it might. Mm. And so... And, it, and I could see even if the person is going to remain resentful of the organization and yeah. unable to go, yeah. there might be some empathy for the person having the conversation to say, all right, I'm going to try not to be a negative right. you know, influence. <laughs> So it's always worth having is what I'm hearing. It's not always worth having. It's not always worth having. Okay. The, the book's called How to Work with Almost Anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, there's, there's sometimes where there's too much of risk or the, the prizes and punishments don't pan out. Like the, punish, the risk of doing this right. outweighs the potential win from that. But I'm trying to nudge people towards it's probably worth giving it a shot more times than you realize. The prize may be bigger than you think the and the risk may be lower. Because the prize might be you make a, a bad working relationship bearable. Mm, which is a good prize. That is a good prize. A good it's like it moves from being a source of anger and sadness and frustration mm -hmm. to it's not great, but we've, we've found a cordial entente. You know, we like, we've figured out a way of, of making this work that's good enough and we're going to get to the end of the relationship and when we're done we're like shake hands say goodbye delighted never to see you ever right. again yeah. <laughs> but we made it through but we made yeah. it through yeah hmm. well i think that's that's a good kind of close here which is that uh, what i'm taking away is you know yes you do have to kind of do this calculus right whether the prize and punishments yeah but the prize may be it may not be nirvana it probably won't be. Probably won't. I mean, there are not that many working relationships where you're like, this is amazing. Right. But congratulations if you, if you have those, celebrate those, keep them going as long as possible. But really, it's mostly trying to shift the rest of the bell curve. The ones that are really hard at the moment, make them bearable and good enough. The ones that are in the middle, give them a bit more sparkle. Mm -hmm. Give them a chance to both of you to, to, to flourish in there. And, and I think that's that... I like that definition of the best possible relationship. It's not a, the best relationship, exactly. it's the best possible one. And starting from the beginning, if you have the luxury, yeah. if you hire someone, if you inherit a team, if you take over, yeah. it's worth doing. And, and worth doing, I know we didn't touch on this, but maybe the last question I'll ask you is, we, we've approached these conversations through the lens of a manager or leader yeah. with their people. Yeah. Just share your final thought on how to do that. Let's say you, you have a leader who isn't having that conversation with right. you. How do you initiate this with upward? <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's simple and difficult. Because <laughs> the simple version is, hey, can we have a conversation about how we're working together? Because mm -hmm. I'd really like to see if we can make this working relationship as good as possible. Mm -hmm. That's kind of it. Yeah. And you know that saying, the best time to plant an acorn is... 20 years ago but the second best time to plant it is today it's like you don't have to wait till you're at the start of a working relationship you can kind of stop and go all of my key people i could have this conversation with i just take a beat and go before we plunge into the thing the agenda let me just check in i wonder if we could talk about how we're doing and i think you can do that with your boss and obviously, there are going to be some bosses who are like, look, who are you? Right. <laughs> well, I, I don't even understand what this email means. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm Give confused. me the TPS report. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think there's a, a, a large number of people, certainly the people who listen to a podcast like this, who would be delighted if someone on their team went, hey, I am really committed to being the, this being the best possible relationship it can be, to bring out my best and to bring out your best. Can we have a conversation about how we might do that? I'm like, 
I immediately really like you because you're taking responsibility and accountability in a way that feels very, how we work. very adult to adult yes. rather than, as so often happens in our organizations, we kind of set up these parent-child relationships. I'm the boss. I know everything. You're the child. You just I wait to, to tell me what to do. And I do think that's, you know, we are at this great moment in time where I think that is starting to change. And people, you know, we've seen this with workers just leaving <laughs> and demanding more. I see the right. internal communication where people are saying, I'm not going to, I will challenge your thinking. Right. And so, and I also think from leaders, people are recognizing their own humanity and they're open to that. So I, I think you're right. You and I were at a conference together and we saw somebody talking about retention mm -hmm. issues and that Gen Z's, like, what is it? 70% of Gen Z's left their job in the first year. And it is. And that's saying we've heard for years, which is people join organizations, but they leave managers. So the goal is don't be that manager. And the goal is don't have that manager. And you can take responsibility on both sides of the relationship to say, I don't want to, I've joined an organization that I'm optimistic about. I don't want to leave in the first year. But I will, because I'm intolerant of the BS of, of management at its worst. This gives you a chance to bring out the best of your people and keep them longer. And I think that, and what also it does is it, it gives a, the opportunity for you as an employee to bring out the best in your leader. That's right. And I think that's what's so powerful about this. I'm excited to read the book, excited to put some of this into practice. I already have some, some things brewing. So Michael, I really appreciate you coming on the pod and talking about it. Thanks, Pat. This is great. Yeah. So if people want to l learn more, yeah. I know you have like an army of content production <laughs> Uh, what's available for free yeah. before they, of course, come to the inevitable conclusion yeah. that they should buy 50 <laughs> copies of your book? Um, look, if you want to find more about the book, bestpossiblerelationship.com. And there's a bunch of free stuff that you can download. You can download the five questions. You can download and get access to me role modeling, having that conversation so you can actually see what a Keystone conversation looks like. Um, and more generally at my website, mbs.works. I like that you point out you're not running... Saudi Arabia is the different, you're the different MBS. I'm, I'm not that MBS, yeah. <laughs> um, MBS.works is the, the overall website and there's a bunch of kind of free resources that people can download there. And then on social media, at MBS underscore works, on Instagram, LinkedIn. You're uh, everywhere. A, a little bit on Twitter, but you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I want to be part of a right-wing conspiracy social media group, which is what it seems to be it becoming. It seems to be devolving. Yeah, exactly. Well, Michael, thanks so much for, for this conversation. It was brilliant. Thanks, bud. Hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Michael. And I really encourage you to pick up his new book, How to Work With Almost Anyone. It's super easy to read. It's very practical. And this concept of talking about how we're going to work together rather than just what we're going to work on is so critical to me in this day and age. So really uh, appreciate him coming on the pod, sharing his insights. And I know I'm going to be putting a lot of what he shared into practice. Next time on the pod, I welcome a member of the Humphrey Group's uh, instructional team, Ash Kay. She's a broadcast, former journalist, former broadcast television producer, She's worked in leadership and she just brings tremendous expertise in the realm of presence, what it is, how to project it authentically that you will enjoy hearing about. Our clients love her and that's why I said we've got to get you on the pod to do a deep dive into presence. So tune in next time for that conversation. In the meantime, please rate and review the pod, helps us get found 
and helps others enjoy these conversations. So until then, go forth and inspire.